Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Rory and Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street Analyst teams. Today, we're talking about the shock departure of Under Armour CEO Patrick Frisk, why Tesla was removed from an ESG index, and our latest thoughts on Eventbrite now that the pandemic restrictions have lifted. So guys, welcome, welcome to this week's Stock Club podcast. Uh, For our listeners out there, you know the story by now, but I'll just remind you again that we do have an extended version of the Stock Club podcast that's live in the My Wall Street app right now. Um, The extended part of this is that we pick one of the elevator pitches at the end. So either Anne-Marie and and Aurora are going to pitch me a company I'm going to pick my favorite one and we're going to go go through it in more detail and kind of decide if it's a good investment or not at the end. So if you want to listen into that, make sure to jump on over to my Wall Street app now and listen to that extended version. In last week's extended version, uh, Rory, you pitched us Beyond Meat and we suddenly or somehow <laughs> finished up with challenging Mike to eat a Beyond Meat sausage live on air. Uh, that's probably the reason why he hasn't <laughs> joined this week's podcast. Uh, Anne-Marie, Rory, I'm, I want to ask you guys before we start off today, what is the worst food I could challenge either of you? guys to eat live on air cucumbers, cucumbers. oh yeah cucumbers yeah. are gross yeah. i would actually be a cucumber person myself too that's a genetic thing i think isn't it yeah there's this there's certain people with genes who can taste cucumbers or taste a chemical in cucumbers um and i happen to be one of them i hate that i don't like cucumbers because they're in loads of things <laughs> <laughs> um and like it's so bad that like even if it like a cucumber touches something I'm kind of turned off by eating that thing that the cucumbers touched. Yeah, they're bad. I hate I hate places that put out that cucumber water as well. It's just the smell of it turns my stomach. And Ray, you're you're shaking your head cucumbers for you as well. Yeah, no, I don't like cucumbers. I do like pickles though, which are pickles. yeah. Oh, I love pickles. Yeah, <laughs> just pickle pickles must kill whatever that chemical is in it. Because yeah, I love pickles. I eat pickles all day. Yeah, yeah I don't. Yeah, I wouldn't be cucumbers. They're just the kind of flavored water. It just I hate it. No. Yeah. No, no, yeah. No. I wonder what the, the statistical probability is of all three of us having that gene on this podcast. Have you seen that um video of one of the Kardashian kids trying to cut a cucumber? I actually yeah. have. <laughs> sure, she, she's fully crisscrossed through the arms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everything I know about the Kardashians, I know against my will, but I was happy to watch that video. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a certain level of smugness you get watching that video. No one, you really feel like you're you're a real person down in the trenches when you discover a person who can't cut a cucumber. Um, enough about cucumbers, though. Let's move on to some stock market news. Um, and bad news for Under Armour in the past week after the shock departure of their CEO, Patrick Frisk. So just a few weeks after a pretty disappointing earnings report from Under Armour where they featured an unexpected quarterly loss and they also gave a 
pretty disappointing outlook for the rest of the year, which I suppose is an exclusive to Under Armour. The company announced just last week that Frisk would be leaving. Uh, no reason was given for this, although it was described by Under Armour and Frisk as a mutual separation. I've heard that one before. Um, so Frisk actually joined Under Armour back in 2017, and he took over as CEO from founder Kevin Plank back in 2020, just before um, the world kind of shut down uh, due to coronavirus. In fairness to Frisk, though, he has really managed to turn things around or he was on the cusp of turning things around for Under Armour. They were in a really, really bad place when he took over. And we have seen a little bit of resurgence for them recently, perhaps not in terms of stock price, but things had been over the last couple of quarters really looking up for Under Armour. Um, This recent news has sent Under Armour stock down. And Marie, you've been looking at Under Armour recently and kind of comparing them as a turnaround stock to other turnaround stocks we've seen um, with a new CEO. I think Chipotle Mexican Grill is kind of the golden child of that turnaround. How big of a loss, how big of a loss will Frisk be to Under Armour? It's kind of hard to say really, mainly because we don't know why he's leaving. That hasn't, that information like hasn't been disclosed to us. They just said it was a neutral decision because I think like myself and a lot of other investors, if we were told it was for personal reasons, oh, he's leaving because he wants to take time off or something like that, I think we would all take comfort in that be like, oh, he's, you know, there's no kind of feud between himself and the company or he's uncomfortable with how, where it's heading or, or whatever it may be. Um, in terms of what it will mean for the turnaround plan, it would appear that much of the work that he set out to do and, and, and kind of the goals that he had set for the company are actually already done or are well underway. So last fall on a call with analysts, he said, quote, the majority of our transformational work is complete. And um, with the main kind of concrete goals of that being pulling supply out of wholesalers, launching more premium products from it, and expanding direct-to-consumer channels. All of that is already set up and kind of ready to go. Yeah, and can you expand on that a little bit? Sorry to cut across you, but, you know, Under Armour, you know, as a company, they were really, really down the pits back in 2020. You know, CEO and founder Kevin Plank stepped down. Um, Their brand had just been destroyed, especially amongst competitors like Nike and Lululemon. Can you kind of explain where they were then and and what Frisk has done to kind of bring them back to this place where he's saying that the transformation is complete. Yeah, so basically what happened to Under Armour is it really lost its reputation as being a, a premium sports brand, which is what it had always somewhat set out to do. So when it was founded, it was seen as this thing of, oh, we create you know, the necessary clothing to go under football jerseys. That's actually where the, the name comes from, Under Armour. And it was, oh, these are very high tech. This is all specialty fabric. This is designed for performance athletes. The issue that Under Armour had was for a very long time, it used to sell through premium sports retailers like Sports Authority. Sports Authority went bankrupt, I don't know, at this point now, seven, eight, nine years ago. And when they went bankrupt, it, it all of a sudden meant that Under Armour didn't really have a place to sell to consumers. Their direct-to-consumer channel was pretty small. And this meant that all of a sudden, all of Under Armour's stock was ended up in discount retailers, places like TJ Maxx, Kohl's, Ross, that type of thing. And it meant that Under Armour really couldn't control its, its perception to the public. And that seems to have damaged it significantly. You know, if you're trying to sell apparel to a high performance college athlete who might be signed to, you know, a Big Ten school, they're not going to be going to Ross to pick up, you know, the the shirts they're going to wear under their jerseys or their cleats or anything like that. So it was just a bit unreasonable. And so many of the kind of concrete steps that were taken were based upon we need to 
basically take back control of our brand, control how it interacts with the public, control how it's perceived. And um, that has seen them take a strong stance in the direct-to-consumer space. You know, they, they are removing their stock from something like 15,000 discount retailers. They really bolstered their website, their shipping capabilities, their fulfillment, and then kind of rebranding the stores themselves to return them to this thing of, of hey, this is where high-performance athletes should come and try out gear and talk to experts and, and, and that sort of sense. And, and really a factor that they – double down on that I thought was really interesting was this focus on creating gear specifically for female athletes, which I really do think ha- there is an opportunity there. There's a gap in the market. The reason being, I think that traditionally we would think of Nike as the home for professional athletes. You know, they have virtually like every athlete under the sun signed to them. The yeah. issue was is in the last two to three years, they have alienated a couple of really big name female athletes, namely Simone Biles and Allison Felix for you know, two different reasons. The Allison Felix one was particularly bad. It came out that Nike was refusing to pay her sponsorship fees while she was pregnant, which, you know, if you're going to sponsor a female athlete, that's yeah. part of the deal, really. Um, and so Under Armour went to its most famous female athlete at the time, um, who is Lindsey Vaughn, who was a skier. And they were like, hey, like, what are we doing wrong? And Lindsey Vaughn was like, I'm about ready to leave my sponsorship because all you do for women's clothing is take male clothing and just make it smaller and put pink stuff on it. And that's all you do. Yeah. And so they went into the lab basically and paid millions of dollars in R&D and said, right, we're going to develop gear specifically made for women. We're going to throw everything out and start from scratch. And that has been very successful. And they've spoken about that in their last couple of analyst calls. And I do think there's a gap in the market for that. We have Lululemon that's making like leisure wear, yoga stuff, Pilates stuff. We don't really have the established brand for women. And even on their most recent quarterly call, they said, this is something that we're focusing on. They see it as its main driver of growth going forward, that and footwear. So it is it, like some of the stuff they've been doing is really interesting. There is a turnaround story there. There are green shoots. It's just mm. this kind of throws a bit of a wrench in the mix. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you've described there a company that's that's kind of maybe refound its niche um, and is really on the up. So, you know, as an investor, would you be worried that Frisk is choosing now to leave when, you know, obviously very there's there's short there's short term headwinds here with the kind of wider economy and stuff. But mm-hmm. with a company that really seems to have started turning things around, why choose now to leave? Again, like we don't know because he hasn't told us why he's leaving Um, and he will remain a consultant to the brand up until September. Um, I think my main thing is is the idea that a lot of the rebuild has has happened under him during COVID. And I think in some ways that was a good headwind for them. We saw a lot of at-home workout routines. We saw people, you know, interested in buying leggings and leisure wear and and stuff like that because they weren't going into work. They needed more casual clothing. Um, And then also Under Armour sold a tremendous number of masks during uh, the kind of early days of COVID. They were well known for that. that. Yeah. So it's – kind of difficult now to determine what's causing the green shoots you know is it patrick frisk by himself is it the overall management team is it the branding has already been reestablished and we're just naturally moving towards this was it covid and so i don't really know what the answer is going to be like i would be watching under armor probably for the next couple of quarters to see how things pan out i don't know how much credit to kind of give him because of of the kind of unusual macroeconomic environment that the company is currently operating in yeah, absolutely. I'll come back to Under Armour specifically in a minute. But Rory, I'm I'm interested, you know, Under Armour have forecast a diff- difficult year ahead. Do you think we could see ma- other CEO departures? It's kind of like the Premier League at the minute. If a team goes through a few bad games, is the manager on the line? Could we see a few other CEO departures um, in, in the next few months, do you think? Well, I mean, just coming back to Frisk for a minute, I mean, I think a lot of... I think a lot of the thesis we had on Under Armour was that Frisk was going to be there. Yeah. Um. You know, he was a real turnaround 
wonder kid essentially you know in in the world of retail i don't know if any of you remember but about 10 years ago everyone started wearing timberlands again um that was it he completely rebranded timberlands the, the shoes and, and made them he's cool. the one to blame yeah pretty much he's the one to blame um he was also like really influential in, in bringing up brands like north face um was one that he was kind of in charge of he, he he kind of was seen as this real kind of superstar of the turnaround and he had i mean look under armor hasn't fully turned around yet but there as his amory highlighted there was so many structural issues at that business um the the apps that they'd bought the the connected fitness play that they tried to make that just didn't work out the the huge discounting of their of their apparel that's just i mean there's a, a survey that comes out every i think it's uh twice a year which is like a teen um survey i can't remember who does it Do you remember who does it? Uh, it's, P- piper jeffries uh, yeah. it's called uh, taking stock with teens definitely taking stock with teens like the right <laughs> like they they went from like the coolest brand um with teens to like the least cool in like two years and and it was all because of the, like the the company just seemed to be built on just a house of cards i think even when they did try and like execute a good d to c strategy something like 90 percent of their their stores that they owned were were outlet stores like they just they completely like lost their brand equity in in, mm. in such a like a, a real kind of set fire to the whole thing way like, um and so yeah i don't it's it's perplexing as to why he's leaving and and you know i i think they would have done really anything they could to try and keep him and i i mean i do think you know in this kind of environment there's going to be a lot of like heads being called for and it's not necessarily ceo's fault in a, lot of, in a lot of respects you know look at the the world we're in this kind of perfect storm where there's inflation supply chain issues no one really knew what was going to happen post-covid nor i'm not sure why would they it was a, it was a black swan event so um plenty of companies invested heavily in growth that they thought was going to sustain plenty of businesses are coming out now saying we really don't have a clue what's going to happen over the next 12, 18 months in terms of consumer demand and in, in, in terms of prices and margins. So it's a real time of uncertainty. And, you know, I can't, I can't even blame a couple of CEOs who might think, Jesus, I can't deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Can't be bothered with this. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Anne-Marie, that, you know, it kind of does fundamentally change or it might alter our investment thesis on Under Armour. So, yeah, one to keep an eye out for in my Wall Street app and see if there's any updates coming soon. Let's move on then. And this is a story. I'm particularly interested in. So last week it was announced that Tesla had been removed from the S&P 500's ESG index as part of its annual updates to the list. So for anyone that doesn't know, the S&P 500 ESG index is an index that uses environmental, social and government ESG data to rank and recommend companies to investors. The criteria that companies are ranked on includes loads of data points that are related to businesses that affect the planet, stakeholders like customers, employees and the world at large. Rory, for Tesla, an electric car company being booted out of a list that takes environmental concerns into consideration, um, doesn't look great for them. How does that happen? Um, well, the, the S&P uh, updates this list annually. And, you know, every year there is a kind of few odd inclusions and a couple of companies that 
the two get kind of axed. You know, we don't need to really speculate here because actually along with the removing of Tesla, uh, a spokesperson for the the index did come out and give an actual full-blown <laughs> press release as to why they're being um, kicked off. Um, I'll, I'll read some of it here for you. A few factors contributing to this year's DJI ESG score were a decline in a criteria level scores related to Tesla's, in brackets, lack of low carbon strategy <laughs> uh, and codes of business conduct. In addition, a media and stakeholder analysis, a process that seeks to identify a company's current and potential future exposure to risks, stem from its involvement in a controversial incident, identified two separate event, uh, events centered around claims of racial discrimination and poor working conditions at Tesla's Fremont factory, as well as its handling of the NHTSA's investigation after multiple deaths and injuries were linked to its autopilot vehicles. So, you know, this is kind of one of those things that I think shouldn't really be much of a surprise if you've kind of followed this company closely. Obviously, in the kind of in the zeitgeist and and to you know just to the consumers who don't maybe kind of read business news as often as as we do, um, Tesla is like this you know very eco friendly company. They're trying to revolutionize the automobile industry, and look credit where credit is due. Tesla has really kind of, I suppose, taken the torch um, from Toyota in terms of kind of the marketing and selling of, of low emission vehicles. Um, they have made a Tesla, you know, an electric car, the coolest car someone can drive today. Um, yeah. And that really does have to be applauded. But it is, it's long been known that the company has achieved this and achieved their you know, their market cap and their position in the industry by regularly cutting corners um, and behaving like bad actors in many respects. Uh, Just last year, Tesla was ranked number 22 on the Toxic 100 Polluters Index, uh, which is an annual list um, uh, done by UMass Amherst. Um, They actually were higher on the list than Enron. Uh, you know, they've, uh, you know, er- earlier this year, for example, um, it was announced they were being investigated by the state of California for their handling of waste. They were fined in Germany, uh, I think last year for not meeting take back obligations on spent batteries. They've been sued by California over black harassment and discrimination. The agency said it found evidence that Tesla routinely kept black workers in low level roles um, and gave them more physically demanding and dangerous assignments and retaliated against them when they complained about racist slurs. So, you know, this this doesn't surprise anyone who's kind of keeping, you know, an eye on on what is happening in Tesla. There's a lot of problems at that business. So, you know, behind the sh- the shiny veneer of a very eco-friendly electric car company, they there is reasons why you would not include them in the ESG list. Yeah, well, look, newsflash, Elon Musk wasn't happy with this. Uh, so he hit Twitter, where else? And he said that ESG was, and I quote, a scam. And I also quote, the devil incarnate. Um, look, here at my Wall Street, a, a lot of the people who follow us and who are customers of us, you know, the, the, the modern way of thinking about investing is investing in you know things that you believe in and and the way you see the world and for a lot of people that's environmentalism it's in sustainable businesses and a lot of people we do get a lot of questions asking about esg invest investments and you know companies that rank highly on esg scores what rory is your perception of esg um and is it as simple as you know companies a good esg rating it's a good company to invest in well look um Elon is obviously having a bit of a moment right now. Um, <laughs> I can, I can understand. You know. a, few, a few other things going on in his life, I think. 
he he tried to own the libs by buying Twitter and it's ended up wiping half a trillion dollars of his actual company. <laughs> so I suppose you can kind of forgive his lack of nuance when it comes to this ESG thing. I, th- I think, you know, ESG investing is, I suppose, a fundamentally good idea. It's where we should be headed. I think it's it's a way that people like to think about investing and, and a lot of our users, I suppose, kind of follow that idea that they want to invest in, you know, a more environmentally a uh, more environmentally sound world, one where companies like look after not just their shareholders, but look after all the stakeholders, look after their employees, look after their customers, the society, the, the communities in which they operate. And governance, I suppose, always gets kind of tagged on there at the end. <laughs> yeah. But I think these kind of two main problems with what ESG has kind of become. And I think one is that it's a very broad spe- spectrum of things that you're trying to measure. Um, so, you know, you try and think of all the elements of a business that would fall under those three headings, uh, you know, just, just under kind of social and like, what does that actually even mean? You know, how, yeah. how, do, you, how do you measure that? Um, and the thing is, there's plenty of things about companies that we can measure, you know, for example, carbon output as a, as an example is something that we can measure and we can rank companies on that based on what industry they're in and what size they are. Cause it doesn't really, you know, it's no big point kind of measuring Enron versus, you know, a company that doesn't dig <laughs> dead dinosaurs out of the ground for, for profit. Um, you know, wage parity. Again, something measurable, something rankable, worker satisfaction, board independence, reporting transparency. These are all things that we could create kind of, I suppose, tables and leagues off and, and, and figure out what companies are doing well and what companies aren't doing well. And we could even, you know, take kind of get companies to send in, um, data anonymously so that we could create kind of benchmarks and, and see who's, who's above and who's below. But what's kind of happened is now we're just trying to kind of mash all these things together under kind of one score with no kind of set methodology or kind of understanding of the kind of subtleties between companies and in different industries or of different sizes. So it just kind of become meaningless. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and that can be fixed. I mean, we could, there could be kind of legislation passed or regulations passed in which there was set standards of how to report these things. And, you, you know, there could, you know, in the future, in five, 10 years, we could have, you know, a, a similar role to a CFA whose job is to in, to get this data, analyze this data and report it in a way that's as regulated as, you know, generally accepted accounting principles. Um, but at the moment, we just don't. Uh, the second issue is that there's so much greenwashing going around. You know, it's the, the bigger companies that have just unlimited marketing budgets. They know that this is important to investors. And so they are able to twist things that are, you know, things that are very hard for kind of the general public to kind of decipher you know, some marketing experts in Apple or Enron or Microsoft are, are able to kind of spin and say, look, this is how great we are at this environmental thing. Well, this- I think it is worth pointing out just on that S&P 500 uh, ESG index that ExxonMobil is still on it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, I don't like, I, I don't know, I hadn't read the whole report. I wonder what, what the kind of reasoning behind that was i mean like you know if you if i have i don't really follow exxon mobile but like you know if you were if you were to take a company like exxon let's say they have invested you know billions of dollars into reducing carbon emissions in in this or that 
yeah, that should kind of, I suppose, be celebrated in a way. But when you just kind of grab, and, and maybe they are the most ESG of kind of the big oil producers, but when you just grab like every single company together and just kind of put them in sort of some sort of ranking system, yeah, it just doesn't really make any sense to people. And I think that's where like a lot of this confusion comes from with ESG. Yeah, it reminds me of a story I read. I can't remember why. It must have been a few years ago. It was about one of the big cigarette makers buying an, a company that made inhalers, which I thought uh, just a, a lovely, a lovely reflection of the world. And Maria, I'll leave the last word to you on this. I just want to talk then maybe just specifically and quickly about Tesla. So between this, the press around the whole Twitter thing, um, we've seen you know numerous safety failures and problems with Tesla cars, um, allegations about Musk and his personal life and the kind of meltdown he regularly seems to have on Twitter. There seems to be a bit of a brand catastrophe free brewing over there would you be worried um if you were an investor in tesla about what's going on with uh elon the meme lord maybe yeah maybe a maybe a bit i mean we've seen this the stock crisis has taken a pretty significant hit i know that um i've seen things brewing online that there might be a pretty major safety investigation underway the quite uh, last week in california someone was using their tesla on autopilot came off the road went onto the sidewalk and killed three people um yeah, it's a, it's quite a terrible storm for Tesla at the minute, and, and I know we tend to always categorize it as a technology company and let our dreams fly as high as humanly possible, but um, I think when it comes to it as an actual car company, it seems to be experiencing uh, quite a lot of pain. So it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. Maybe we'll see Elon backing away a bit and speaking less, but I kind of doubt that. Yeah, <laughs> I won't hold my breath on that one. I think one of the weird things is that you could say to people like, oh, you know, like in times like this, you should focus on the fundamentals. I think one of the main problems is people <laughs> are focusing on the fundamentals. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's look, let's move on. Um, so don't forget that if you listen to this podcast in the My Wall Street app, you get an extra extended version. You get to hear the full version of one of our elevator pitches at the end of this episode. I'm still to hear what companies we're going to talk about. So make sure to listen out for that. It's completely free to listen to episodes of Stock Club in the My Wall Street app. All you need to do is download the app on iOS or Android and create a free account. Can I also make a plug? Yep, go for it. Okay, cool. So uh, FML has a new uh, episode that came out on Wednesday. And actually speaking of... Um, companies and talking about you know how responsible they are and transparency and stuff like that we interviewed yana haynes who is from arc invest wow. and we asked her all about esg investing because she um a couple of years ago was responsible for helping to kind of build an esg fund and how they quantitatively measure them and so we talked to her about that so if you're interested in that type of thing and also all her advice about you know investing young and all of the innovative technologies she's interested in uh you can go listen to that on fml yeah, that sounds like a fascinating episode. That's uh, FML, yeah. Fund My Life. Make sure to listen to it after you finish this episode. Yeah, though. I was can't, just to say. can't let the competition <laughs> no. in too much here. <laughs> That's her la your last plug for your competitive <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and if you listened last week, as you remember, Emmett alluded to, we've got a great limited time offer for his Horizon service this week, offering savings of $250 on a yearly subscription. So if you're not familiar with Horizon, this is the service that Emmett runs himself and invests his own money into. You can find more at mywallstreet.com forward slash Horizon. You'll also be brought straight to the offer there. You might have seen Emmett, if you follow him on Twitter as well, mention how confident he is in Horizon stocks in the long term, despite the you know really difficult economic and widespread conditions we're seeing at the moment. And if you 
join today, you'll get access to this Horizon Spotlight live stream that actually happened last night on Thursday. This is where Emmett picked a stock that he describes as one of the most certain winners he's seen in a long time. So you can find out what stock that is and why it's got so much potential by signing up to Horizon today with that nice discount. That discount runs out this Sunday, May 29th, I believe. So make sure to move fast to get that. Guys, let's move on to Mailbag. Uh, we've got another question in from one of our long-term listeners here, Irla. Thanks a million for this, Irla. So he got in touch with us on Twitter and he asked us about Eventbrite, which is a company, Rory, that we actually haven't spoken about in quite a while here. So obviously, uh, global pandemic, everything being locked down, probably wasn't good news for Eventbrite. They have also they also had some troubles prior to COVID, I seem to remember. Something about their acquisition of Ticketfly and integrating that in. You took a recent look at Eventbrite. How are they looking now? I mean, there's the kind of, I suppose the reason we, we weren't talking about them for a while, because they they didn't have a business for a while. They <laughs> yeah. literally um, just stopped. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, look, it's, I mean, it's easy to blame the pandemic for Eventbrite's decline, I suppose, but things weren't going well for them kind of before that with the ticket fly acquisition, which is kind of another painful reminder that acquisitions more often than not destroy shareholder value. Yeah. Just at the kind of, as that was kind of, I suppose, bottoming out the pandemic struck um live events just stopped um i think it's kind of important to give management a bit of credit here that you know the pandemic was something that literally could have been the end of them um they they pivoted to online events they managed to remain liquid despite like i said their primary business basically just going to zero overnight mm. um it took some kind of pretty painful moves on their part they i think they let go 45% of their corporate staff and they let go of most of their headquarters space in san francisco and for good reason they literally were bringing in nearly no revenue at times but since then you know they have they have started picking up of you know if we do like a kind of comparison so q4 2020 Revenue was just 27 million and paid tickets were just 11 million. So that was kind of at the, I suppose that was kind of at like the tail end of the, of the pandemic. Then since then, things have kind of picked up quite dramatically. So in the last, so in Q4 2021, uh, revenue had jumped to 60 million and paid tickets had doubled to 22 million. Mm. Um, in the most recent quarter, revenue was up over a hundred percent. They very handily beat, uh, Wall Street estimates. Gross profits are recovering. They're now back into like the mid sixties. Uh, net losses in the last quarter were 18 million, which, you know, is still a big loss, but it's a vast improvement on the 85 million they lost mm. in the same quarter last year. They saw paid creators jump 60% just in the last quarter. Frequent creators jump 40%. They've introduced a kind of new product called Boost, which is, is, is there to help creators kind of um, measure their marketing efficiencies. So, I mean, I think if we're looking at this company now, when you've got kind of, I suppose, this kind of big pent up demand for tickets, um, yeah, it looks kind of interesting now. Again, it's one. I, I think it could be one of those things where it's like, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and <laughs> the fact that they kind of did end up having no business to run for two years or, you know, a vastly reduced business to run for two years, kind of let them kind of sort out the that ticket fly mess. I kind of think now, I mean, looking at the business, if you were to say, right, they look like they're going to be able to bring in, you know, 275 million this year in revenue. And that could jump 
you know, up to kind of 350 million the following year. That would put like the market cap of this company, which is only 1.2 billion, looking quite attractive. It would be, you know, 4.3 times this year's sales, around three and a half times 2023 sales. So like in if we were to think about kind of just general normal investing conditions, I would think that would that would be quite attractive. Mm. Um, but of course, this isn't normal <laughs> investing times. It's not normal market conditions. And it's it's one of those businesses that I think, yeah, if we were to look, if we were to look at that and kind of take a kind of, I suppose, first level view of it, it looks like a, a strong buy. But then you have to kind of, I suppose, factor in all the other things that are going on in the world, which is, you know, cost of living increase or you know, pretty much everything we've been talking about for the last six months. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> and, and throw monkeypox in there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, throw monkeypox in there. And wonder, and, and, you know, the fact that, you know, COVID is still around, yeah. <laughs> even though a lot of us are just pretending it isn't, uh, it is still around. Um, and so, yeah, there's, a, it's one of those ones that's, you know, it still seems like a very high risk play despite the, the low market cap and the, and the kind of attractive multiples that's it's got at the moment. But yeah, I don't know. Does anyone have the stomach for it at the, <laughs> right now? Is yeah. the, should we not just be, you know, investing in Berkshire Hathaway and leaving it and leaving it, calling it for the day? <laughs> it seems like the best option, but there's no fun in that, Rory. <laughs> Thanks William, for that, Earl. I hope that answered your question. And yeah, keep an eye out in my Wall Street app. We might have an update on Event Pride coming soon. Okay, guys, let's finish out today with Elevator Pitch as always. So, Rory, I'll come to you first. What companies on your watch list at the moment? This quick 30 second pitch, please. Yeah, looking at a business that, well, like, like a lot of businesses has fallen like 90% uh, in the last six months and a business that I was kind of had an eye on a while ago it's called Asana and mm. I think people might know this company mostly because it's it's a uh, work management software very similar to kind of Jira or Monday.com or Notion but kind of the what's odd about this one is it's it's founded and run by Dustin Moscovich who people will remember as well maybe they won't but he was uh, a co-founder of Facebook he was he was the one that wasn't played by uh, Andrew Garfield field in the social network <laughs> the other one uh, I think he's only in it for like five seconds anyway he started this business and um, he has been buying an awful lot of shares in it uh, I think the, like he spent over a billion dollars in insider buying over the last uh, couple of months so I'm kind of taking a look at that and wondering you know what does he know that we don't yeah okay interesting and Marie what about you what companies are you looking at at the moment I went for like a really recent IPO was something I was, I, you know, we haven't seen an IPO in a while. It's been a recent IPO? <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was looking at Bosch and Loam, which is a company that specializes in uh, eye care. So contact lenses, uh, eye surgery, eye drugs, that type of thing. And they're spinning off from the larger Bosch Health Group, which, you know, does a does – a number of, of medical devices and drugs and, and that type of thing. The reason I know about them is because they made my contact lenses from the time I was about 11 up until I actually switched brands about six months ago. So I was like, sure, we'll give Bosch and Loam a look. It's an interesting company. It has a really interesting history. It's a bit of a boat stock. You know, it's very old. It's slow moving. Um, but I don't look at medical stocks all that often or health stocks all that often. So it was a nice little change of pace. Is 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 boat stock a commonly used term? Because it's the first time I've ever no, heard of it. I think I've I made never it. Heard it I think I made it up, but I like the idea that they're boats. You know, they're big, they float, they don't do much, you know? Have the potential to sink as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, look, uh, based on that, actually, you listeners get a bumper this week because, Rory, you've done your first look on Asana in the My Wall Street app. So I'm going to go with Bosch and Loam. 
and get two for the price of one. So Anne-Marie, let's hear your full pitch on Bosch and Loam. So guys, if you're not listening to Stock Club in the Wall Street app, this is where we're going to leave you today. However, if you want to find out more about Bosch and Loam and find out what we think of it as a potential investment, including the crazy backstory of how the company has come to get here today, jump on over to my Wall Street app and you can catch up on the rest of Anne-Marie's pitch there. We also have a full pitch for Asana in the Stock Club app right now if you want to read up on that as well. That's the first look from Wednesday. Remember, guys, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer in Stock Club or Elevator Pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying Stock Club, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. It really, really helps us out. Thanks so much for joining us today. And from the three of us, we'll talk to you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.